Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name, dear confirmands, and all who are gathered here in Jesus' name. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The treasure Jesus is talking about is our spiritual life. We want to protect what is most important to us, most valuable. So we protect things in our lives. We lock our houses and cars. We put up security systems in our banks. We arm ourselves to protect our businesses. Now Jesus is directing our thoughts to what is even more valuable than our money or our home or our car or our job. He's talking about our relationship with him. That is what matters the most. He is saying to invest your energy and focus on things that he can protect from ever being taken away from you. Invest yourselves in the things that last forever. Jesus is working to protect these treasures in our lives. It's his work to complete in each of our lives from the time he calls us in baptism, converts us, and is with us to the end. And that's why on the cover of the bulletin you have this verse from Philippians. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. This is fitting for us for Confirmation Sunday. Jesus has given each of you treasures. Since the time you were a little baby, you can think of all the ways you've been surrounded by a Christian community and Christian influences, from the congregation to a Christian school to a Christian family, now, you've faced some challenges to your faith, but generally, in the large scope of life, there are bigger challenges to come. There's a lot more to learn, and this is only the beginning. And so Jesus is wanting to protect what he's invested in you, his promises. He wants to complete his masterpiece work in your lives. So he tells you to keep investing in him also. And he will guard what matters the most. And this is true for all of us here today, just as it was true for the Christians living in Philippi in the first century AD. And Paul is writing a letter to them called Philippians. This is the main theme of the letter that we've been looking at in our series. Paul says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, Rejoice. He has to tell us to rejoice because joy is not something that comes naturally. Well, in some ways it does, a little bit. We do get natural glimpses of joy in our life, and God wants us to pay attention to those things. The beauty of a snow-capped mountain, the song of a bluebird, 
the birth of a baby. You can think back on your own childhood and remember those moments that stick with you that bring you joy. I'm sure there's memories of Holy Trinity, either in the classroom or out at recess, that you can remember glimpses of joy, things that made you smile, a feeling of being safe, contentment. And God is giving us these glimpses because he wants us to know what it means to rejoice. But even in these glimpses, we know that it's not the fullness of joy. For instance, a baby can get sick. A son can disobey. A daughter can struggle with fear. That's why Paul has to say it again and again. Again, I will say rejoice. Because we have to protect these glimpses so God can help them grow and that we're getting the joy from the lasting source. There are wrong sources of joy. Jeremiah calls these broken cisterns. They're the places we look for joy that just cannot hold water. They might give us some happiness for a while, but they run dry. What we want are the everlasting fountains that will never run dry, and to protect those fountains from the other things that would seek to steal and rob and suck that well dry. We'll call them the joy robbers. As you look at the letter Paul writes, you can break it easily into four parts, chapter by chapter. You've got four chapters. And in one commentary I was looking at, it did such a nice job of breaking this into a helpful outline for those of you who like to write it down for your own studies. You can break it into four parts. You've got chapter one, circumstance, chapter two, people, chapter three, stuff, and chapter four, worry. So these are the four joy robbers. He wants to protect us from, first, circumstances that could rob us of joy. Second, people and the way they can rob us of joy. Third, stuff and the way that will rob us of joy. And fourth, worry, the way that will rob us of joy. The first joy robber is circumstances. I often find myself thinking this way and talking this way when somebody asks me, how's it going, pastor? And I'll say, well, it was a good day. Or I've had good days and I've had bad days. But are there really good days and bad days? Are, is not every day God's day? What's really good and bad is what's going on in our mind, not what's going on around us. It's our reaction to it that really colors one day from the next. Because when you think about it, what do you really have control over in your life? How much of your daily life do you actually control? Certainly we do have some control. However, we can't expect to control the circumstances around us. We don't have control over whether we get cancer or even whether we get COVID. Even those who have tried to practice all the right CDC guidelines, social distancing, hygiene, double masking, washing and sanitizing, not going to public places, even that person can still get sick. How would you evaluate 
the situation the Apostle Paul is in. How much does he have control over right now? As he's writing this letter, he's locked down in a prison. As we look at these circumstances, and we look at Paul, the one who founded these churches, who started the Christian movement and brought it into Europe, who planted this church in Philippi, now he's in prison. Is that a good day or a bad day? Are those good circumstances or bad? Is this something that's going to help the mission of God's kingdom or not? A lot of times we'd look at it and say, oh, this sounds like bad news. What if, for instance, we learned that our missionary, Peter Evenson, who is overseas right now, what if we learned he was imprisoned by the Hindu government in India based on anti-conversion laws, illegal proselytizing? Would you say that was a good thing? Would we come to the altar to pray for him and say, wow, we've got some good news here? Now, in all of these things, we know there is evil. There is pain. There is bad things happening. But what Paul comes out of this situation and says is in verse 12. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. So even in lockdown, where Paul would have no control over what's happening, in a Roman prison cell, he says these things are turning out for God's good purpose. So rejoice in every situation. The second joy robber our people. And we know how this happens. As my sister once said when she came home, people are stupid and they will keep being stupid until Jesus comes back. In one way or another, we've gone through these experiences of people. Next week, we'll look more in depth at the joy community. But for now, just think about how people can run you dry. They turn on you. They steal from your well. Only they do not know the well of Christ is free, and it's open to everyone, but for some reason, they keep stealing from your well, and they're only thinking of themselves. If they cannot be happy, then unconsciously or not, they begin to turn on everyone else's happiness. Maybe you've even been this person. Maybe you've been the person who's been unhappy and so you're stealing away other people's happiness. Everyone has to be miserable. But Jesus says that we each need to have our own oil in our lamp. Our light comes from him and from his supply. He is the everlasting source of joy and not anyone else around you. Not those from whom you're seeking approval. Not those who are dissatisfied with you. Paul even writes about the enemies of the gospel, who out of hatred and jealousy are trying to make Paul's suffering worse. 
They're crooked and twisted, Paul says. They have no lasting joy. They attack anything that represents God's image and his holiness and his joy. It's not enough for the enemies to simply hold to their own beliefs and values, but they require that you too must agree with them. You must approve of what they're doing. And if you do not, they will shut you down. They will cancel you. They may even imprison you. Persecutions will increase and the love will grow cold. And in the latter days, the Bible says men will be lovers of themselves. But chapter 2 of Paul says this is all the more reason we cannot allow anyone to steal our joy away. Because the joy is the light that keeps on shining when everything else is going badly. So Paul writes, do all things without grumbling or complaining that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Chapter 3 presents the third joy robber, stuff. Stuff is definitely a joy robber, even though it seems at the time like it makes us happy. It is the most subtle of these thieves. It doesn't come in through the locked door, breaking down walls. Instead, it coaxes its way in through the doors we open. It makes itself at home with us, makes us comfortable. One comedian used to talk about the stuff we carry around and how every time we travel, we have to carry stuff, but we have to select just the stuff that we need for our trip. Very selective stuff. And then we go, and as we get to our hotel, we have to decide where we're going to put our stuff. And so we make piles for our stuff around the hotel room. Then we get back home, and we're back to all our stuff that we like. And in fact, our homes become places just to store stuff. Because when we get too much stuff, then we have to do what? Buy a bigger house. And if we get too much stuff for the bigger house, we eventually have to buy storage space. A special place that we pay designated just to put stuff. We fool ourselves into thinking we need it all. We can't live without it. When there comes a choice, a time to sacrifice the stuff for perhaps getting a lesser paying job so we can spend more time at home with our kids, we figure out a way to justify why we need to stay at that job. And if persecution should come to the workplace, if sacrifices are called for by Christ, are we going to be prepared to make them? Are we going to be prepared to sacrifice our very livelihood? in order to stand for what's true in Christ. The Apostle Paul had to learn this lesson, to give up all earthly treasure, because he had accomplished it all. When you look at his life as a Pharisee, he recounts in chapter 3 how he lived as a Pharisee, and he had accomplished all these great achievements. He was the Pharisee of Pharisees, he had titles, prominence, recognition, rewards. 
He had lived through the first half of his life and gotten all the way to the top, and he was on his way to the very top. He could start planning his retirement and take his ease. What could possibly make this man give up that plan in order to live in a Roman prison cell? He says in chapter 3, Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means I may obtain the resurrection from the dead. Paul gave it all up. All the stuff, the accomplishment, the titles, the money. He knows it all grows old and it's not going to fill that empty space that you're trying to fill with it. Only the lasting stuff that comes from Christ will fill that void, that place in your heart. Whether they take our goods, our fame, our child, our wife, let these all be gone. The kingdom's Ours forever. And so the fourth robber is really related to all the other three. Worry. That's what it has to all do with. Worry. We spend a lot of time worrying. Worry, fear, and earthly anxiety. And rather than just thinking to yourself, I need to stop worrying, the first thing is understand why you're worrying. Why are you worried? We don't take enough time to listen, to listen to ourselves, to listen to God. We sometimes think worry is something we can control, and people tell us we'll stop worrying. What, do you, what happens when you tell a person who suffers from anxiety to stop worrying? They start worrying about stopping worrying. Instead, worry is something to examine, to pray about, to search out, to listen to, and figure out what are you worried about and why. Paul writes, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. So there's the last robber to deal with. And the way that this one is kept out of our hearts is by prayer. Prayed to the Lord. Pray your worries to the Lord. But it's not enough just to pray and try to stop worrying, you have to replace the worry with something else. Otherwise, it'll just come right back. And so Paul says, pray away the worry and give thanks. And so thanksgiving, an actual act of your heart, giving thanks to the Lord, is going to fill those places where worry is creeping in. Pray the worry away and give thanks to the Lord and think about all the things that you do have to be thankful for, about all the blessings that God is pouring into your life, and then the peace of God will guard the treasure. 
This is how Jesus protects the lasting treasure. For where your treasure is, your heart will be also. He says, I am the good shepherd. I know you. I know your frustrations about the situation you're in. I know the pain of the relationships you have been in. I know your greed that has clung to earthly treasures. I know the fears that have held you in bondage. I know my sheep. But the thieves, they climb up another way. They sneak into the sheepfold and steal the sheep. Don't listen to them. They are the joy robbers. They are trying to lure you by those things which cannot answer your concerns. They tempt you with ways that seem appealing, but once they have you outside the fold, they abandon you. They leave you to the wolves. They don't really care about you. But I do. I love you. I will always love you. I have laid down my life for you. I have redeemed you from your frustration, from your pain, from your greed, and from your worry. You are mine. Now listen to me. Listen to my voice. I will guide you and guard you. I will protect the treasures of my Father's kingdom so that no one can break in to violate you. I have come that you may have life and that you may have it in abundance. All the other stuff that you have been thinking about only leads to destruction. It only scatters the flock. But I will give you eternal life. I will keep the flock together. I have held you in my hand and no one is able to snatch you out of my hand. Not now and not ever. So trust me and follow me. Daniel, Carly, Cheyenne, follow me. Amen.